So if you would, take your Bible, turn to Hebrews chapter 4 as we begin our time. This morning we'll be looking specifically at verses 3 through 5. In my preparation this week, I was reminded actually of the fact that the invention of text messaging has introduced into our culture a whole new vocabulary that was previously non-existent. In many cases, these new words in our vocabulary are not words at all, but they are acronyms that represent or stand in the place of common words and phrases. Now, if you're a parent of a teen or a tween, then you probably learn new phrases and acronyms on a weekly basis. And you have to keep up with these if you want to know what your kids are talking about. Now, some of these have been around for a while, like LOL, laughing out loud. But if you Google texting acronyms, which, by the way, if you do that, some of them are inappropriate, but you should probably know what those are in case your kids are texting those. But if you Google texting acronyms, you'll find there's a whole world of new words and acronyms out there. A couple to note that stood out to me that I'd never heard was I-Y-K-Y-K, if you know, you know, or W-Y-S-I-W-Y-G, what you see is what you get. But all these new acronyms reminded me of one in particular. The first time that I heard it, it sounded more like a a serious medical condition than a phrase. But someone said to me once, oh, he's got FOMO. Now, if you're not cool and relevant like I am, FOMO means the fear of missing out. Now, at first that sounded silly and, and, and seemed, you know, comical to me. But as I began to think about that phrase, the fear of missing out, and I began to apply that to scriptural truth, I began to realize that so much that happens in our culture is driven by the fear of missing out. Humanity naturally wants to be on the inside. We want to be in the know. We want to be part of the in crowd. In, in fact, this, this idea of, of FOMO can be directly tied to why some investments and, and other things become overnight sensations. Just take the Tickle Me Elmo doll, for example. When you look at the Tickle Me Elmo doll that became so popular in 1996, there's nothing remarkable about that doll. There's no reason that anyone would ever or should ever pay over $1,000 for a Tickle Me Elmo doll. Not in 1996, not today. And yet that's exactly what happened. Why? It suddenly became popular because people had the fear of missing out on this great new toy. And that concept got me thinking about something much more important in the spiritual realm as I contemplated Hebrews. You know, when it comes to eternity in heaven and thinking about enjoying the eternal rest of God, our enemy, the devil, has done his level best to manipulate the fallen world system into thinking one of two lies. The first popular lie in the fallen world about heaven is that there are many ways to enter heaven. And so you really don't have to worry about it because we're all going to find our way there. You have your way and I have my way and they all end in the same place. That's sort of the Oprah mentality, which is lie number one. Lie number two is created to help those who who don't really desire heaven to pacify their, their conscience in this way. Lie number two is that heaven really won't be all that exciting. There's not really any reason to fear missing out on heaven because, after all, it's just going to be a boring existence floating around on clouds and playing harps with baby angels. That's what the fallen world wants 
you to believe. Whether they believe that or not, it's the joke that's made to sort of say, hey, there's not that much going on when it comes to eternal rest in heaven. You don't have to worry about missing out on that. But that's a lie that has tragic consequences. Because the Bible presents eternity with God as anything but boring. And the author of Hebrews this morning is going to call us to look at the eternal rest of God as a reality that should provoke the utmost anticipation. You and I and everyone else certainly should fear missing out on the eternal rest of God. You'll remember that the theme of Hebrews is the superiority of Christ. We see it on every single page. We've been looking at this extended section and from chapter 3, verse 7 to chapter 4, verse 13, where the author is beginning to apply the fact that Jesus is greater than Moses. What are we to make of the fact that Jesus is greater than Moses? Well, he's been telling us that. Remember that the theme of this section is simply this. Be on guard against hard-hearted unbelief towards Christ. We're studying this second warning passage that we're to beware of hard-hearted unbelief. And the author's been applying Psalm 95. All of this passage comes back to an explanation and application of Psalm 95. In chapter 3, we saw four tactics for guarding ourselves against a hard heart. You remember tactic number one, remember the past. Secondly, examine your heart. Thirdly, encourage the church. And finally, cling to faith. And that last tactic, cling to faith, has has launched us now into where we are in chapter 4. At the end of chapter 3, you'll remember there were these series of three questions and answers that led up to one dramatic truth. Here's the lesson of those verses. Unbelief produces disobedience. You'll see them there on the screen from Hebrews chapter 3, verses 16 to 19. Let's just read those for the sake of context. It said, for, for who provoked him when they had heard? Indeed, did not all those who came out of Egypt led by Moses? And with whom was he angry for 40 years? Was it not with those who sinned, whose bodies fell in the wilderness? And to whom did he swear that they would not enter his rest, but to those who were disobedient? And here's the lesson, verse 19. So we see that they were not able to enter because of unbelief. Now that lesson brought us directly into chapter 4, and this is where we left off last time. Last time we were in Hebrews, we looked at the first two verses of chapter 4. And it opens in verse 1 with a sober warning. Fear falling short of God's rest. Fear, falling short of God's rest. That that should bother every single one of us, this idea of missing out on God's rest. He says it this way in verse 1, chapter 4, verse 1. Therefore, let us fear if while a promise remains of entering his rest, any one of you may seem to have come short of it. Now, right after that, the author is going to give us two explanations. We looked at the first explanation last time. We'll look at the second today. Let's begin now in verse 2. This is the first explanation we saw last time. For indeed, we have had good news preached to us just as they also, referring to the wilderness generation. But the word they heard did not profit them because it was not united by faith in those who heard. 
I'll stop there for just a moment. This is explanation number one. Now, if you have your notes from last time, you'll notice I changed the title of this point. It's because as I studied more deeply for this week, I realized there's a closer connection between the verses we studied last time and this time than I first had realized. Actually, what he's doing is giving two explanations. The first is the one we studied last week. The second one is the one we'll study today. And here's explanation number one. Why should we pay attention to this warning of of fearing falling short of the rest of God? Well, first of all, unbelievers are excluded from God's rest. That's the first explanation. Unbelievers are excluded from God's rest. If you want to follow the structure of this section of of, of scripture, if you're into block diagramming and you've been through the teaching seminar and you, you enjoy practicing that, just follow two words. Follow the word therefore and the word for. The word therefore introduces his key primary points in this section, and the words for are modifying points that support those. You'll notice that this first subordinating point in verse 2 begins with the word for, and our text will do the same today. So that first explanation is simply this. Unbelievers are excluded from God's rest. Remember that the, the, the Israelites in the wilderness had received good news. They had heard the promise that God was bringing them into the promised land, and yet they found themselves not entering it. Why? Because it was not, not united with faith. They didn't believe the promise, and therefore they were excluded from the promise and left out of the promised land. That was the negative example. But now, in the second explanation, he's going to turn to the positive. He wants us to understand a great positive truth in verses 3 to 5. And this is explanation number 2. Believers gain entrance into God's rest. While unbelievers are excluded from God's rest, believers gain entrance into God's rest. Let's pick up with our text now with verses 3 to 5. These are the verses we'll study today. For we who have believed enter that rest, just as he has said, as I swore in my wrath, they shall not enter my rest, although his works were finished from the foundation of the world. For he has said somewhere concerning the seventh day, and God rested on the seventh day from all his works. And again, in this passage, they shall not enter my rest. Again, The key explanation here is that believers will gain entrance into God's rest. Now, as we look at this text, it begins here with these wonderful words. For we who have believed enter that rest. Notice the word for. Again, this connects it back to that that first initial warning in verse 1. This is a second explanation, a second reason that we should fear the idea of not entering the promise promise of God, the rest of God, is because we know how that entrance takes place. It takes place by faith. For we who have believed enter that rest. Now, the Greek ordering of the words in the Greek text emphasizes uh, this idea of entering. It begins with the verb for we enter. So it's the very first word in the Greek text. The Greek does that when it wants to pull out something and emphasize it. Here, this is... This is to be a a cause of rejoicing. When you come to verse 3, we should all let out a shout of praise because it begins with the fact that we, God's people, enter. We get to go in. 
the rest that was denied this wilderness generation, we as God's people get to enter into that rest. This is a cause for praise. You know, much of this warning passage so far has been very sobering. It's been a call to evaluate the nature of our faith. But understand that the author's intention here in this passage is not to discourage true believers. This is not a passage of discouragement. If you're a true Christian here this morning and you've walked away discouraged from these warning messages that we've studied so far, just understand that you've, you've missed the primary point. It's the unbeliever who is to walk away trembling in their boots at the idea that they may not enter, they will not enter because of their lack of faith into God's rest. But if you're here this morning and you have genuine faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, you've turned from your sins to to salvation in Jesus Christ, this is a, a passage of rejoicing because we do enter the rest of God. And we see that clearly here because he says we enter that rest. We ourselves is the the emphasis. And notice that verb, we enter, is in the present tense. It's in the present tense. Don't miss that fact. That's not an insignificant detail, that this verb, we enter, is in the present tense. For the Christian, though there is a future entrance into God's eternal rest that will be full and complete, there is a sense, spiritually speaking, in which we have already entered into the eternal rest of God. If you're a Christian this morning, the fact that that verse is in the those that verb is in the present tense, we enter, should help you understand that your salvation is settled and secured. If you've turned in repentance and faith to Christ, no one and nothing can rip you out of his hand. The verdict has been made and it will never be brought back into the courtroom of God. You have been justified, you are being sanctified, and you will be completely glorified. That's why this verb is in the present tense. We enter. Let me read for you a passage of scripture. This is the passage that the first song we sang this morning is based on. This is encouragement of the fact that we enjoy security in our, in our faith in Christ. Romans 8, 29-39. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to become conformed to the image of his Son, so that he would be the firstborn among many brethren. And these whom he predestined, he also called. And these whom he called, he also justified. And these whom he justified, he also glorified. What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who is against us? He who did not spare his own son, but delivered him over for us all, how will he not also with him freely give us all things? Who will bring a charge against God's elect? God is the one who justifies. Who is the one who condemns? Christ Jesus is he who died, yes, rather who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who also intercedes for us. Who will separate us from the love of Christ? Will tribulation, or distress, or persecution, or famine, or nakedness, or peril, or sword? Just as it's written, for your sake we're being put to death all day long. We were considered as sheep to be slaughtered. But in all these things, we overwhelmingly conquer through him who loved us. For I'm convinced that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor principalities nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor any other created thing will be able to separate us from the love of God which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. 
Now that is encouragement. That we are held fast. He holds us in his hand because of the perfect work of his son. And it's because of that that the author of Hebrews says confidently in the present tense, we enter. We enter God's rest. The believer's entrance into the eternal rest of God is guaranteed in Christ. Just as the unbeliever should quake in fear as he contemplates God's rejection, the believer should rejoice in confidence that he or she will enter God's rest. So how do you know if you fall into the category of those who should tremble in fear or of those who should rejoice in confidence? The answer is laid out for us here in the text. It's not a mystery. How does he describe those who enter God's rest? He describes them in this way. We who have believed enter that rest. For we who have believed. Here again is the great dividing line. It's the dividing line that we've been looking at this entire time in this text. The issue today is the same as the issue back in the wilderness generation. It's the issue of faith. The wilderness generation found themselves barred from entering into God's rest because they did not have genuine faith in God and His promise. But the opposite is also true. Just as surely as those who hardened their hearts in unbelief were banned from entering into God's rest, those who humble themselves in repentant faith in the Lord Jesus Christ are graciously guaranteed entrance into God's rest. Now again, this... These words here, those who have believed, this is a participle, but it's in the aorist tense, a different tense, not the present tense, but the aorist tense. The aorist tense is used of, of a one-time action, typically in the past, not always, but typically in the past tense. Usually we translated it with the simple past tense, we who have believed. That's the idea here, but what I want you to see is this is a one-time action. It's pointing back to a, a point in the life of the Christian. And it's the event that we call conversion. When we use the term conversion, we're referring to that moment in a believer's life in which they came to not only understand the facts of the gospel, but to place their faith in Christ through the gospel. The gospel, to be sure, does include certain facts that you must know and affirm. Let me just give you a short list of what are those facts of the gospel. Well, number one... To understand the gospel, you have to understand that God is the holy creator to whom we are accountable. Secondly, you have to understand that we have sinned and rebelled against him. Thirdly, this rebellion makes us guilty and worthy of eternal punishment. That's the bad news of the gospel. But here comes the good news. God sent his son Jesus to live in our place, die as our substitute on the cross, and rise again to life in victory over sin and death. Fifthly, all who repent of their sins and believe in Jesus for salvation will be forgiven of sin, adopted into the family of God, and brought safely home to glory. These are the facts of the gospel that you must know and understand and affirm. But verse 2 of chapter 4 made it clear that the wilderness generation knew the facts of the promise of God and in their case, they still didn't enter into the promised land because knowing the facts is different than believing. 
It's not genuine faith just to know those things. It's not genuine faith even to just cognitively say, okay, yes, I believe those things are true. The question here is, have you personally come to the place in which you've humbled yourself before God and you've turned to Him with Jesus Christ being your only hope where you've realized I'm hopeless when it comes to my salvation unless what Jesus did is applied to me? Do you believe it? Do you trust it as your only hope of salvation? Have you confessed faith in the gospel of God? If you haven't done that here this morning, there's still good news for you because you're still alive. And if you're willing this morning to turn from your sins and put your faith in Jesus Christ, then this verb will still be in the present tense for you. At the moment that a person turns in humble faith and repentance, they can say, we enter. I get to go into the eternal rest of God because of what Christ has done for me. You can go from fear to confidence in a moment this morning if you'll humble yourself and place your faith solely in the Lord Jesus Christ. Let me ask you, are you confident this morning that you are one who will enter? And if you are, then you should be on the edge of your seat with joy and anticipation over what Christ has done for you. That he's purchased the entrance into the eternal rest of God. Now here's what we're going to do with the rest of our time this morning. I want us to look at the author's argument in the rest of these verses, from verses 3 to 5, and, and understand how he masterfully explains this and backs up these ideas with the scriptures. But then after having done that, I want to to take some time to understand more fully this concept of God's rest. What is this thing called God's rest? What is it that is promised to us as believers, and why should we look forward to it with such great anticipation? But before we do that, before we get to God's rest specifically, let's look back at the text and notice how the author proves his point. He basically made a statement here in verse 3 that we who have believed enter that rest, and now he's going to support that statement with several arguments. Before we look at the arguments themselves, you have to understand his thinking here. It seems that the author is anticipating some questions from the audience, some questions that may come up in their mind as they hear him say that we enter into that rest. There are two primary questions that he answers here. The first question is this, how do we know God's rest is still available? How can we have confidence in that? The second question is this, how do we know believers will enter God's rest? Essentially, prove it. You've said that that rest is available and that believers will go in. How do we know that? Well, he's going to prove it from Psalm 95. He's going to direct us back to that Old Testament psalm that he's been looking at this entire time. And it's here that we'll find the foundation of his argument. Look back at the text in verse 3. For we who have believed enter that rest just as he has said. Now, he's cluing us in that a quote is coming, and the quote there, it's probably in italics or a different font in your Bible. That quote is from Psalm 95, verse 11. Here's the quote. As I swore in my wrath, they shall not enter my rest. Now, the author is using this again as a supporting argument for what he's just said. He's going to flesh this out for us more in just, in just a moment. But I, I have to confess to you, as I studied this for the first time, 
it took me longer than I would like to admit to, to see the immediate connection. How, how does this quote connect to what he just said? In what way does this quote prove the fact that we who have believed will enter into that rest. But as you survey the context and, and read further, you begin to see exactly the argument that he's making. And, and what I believe he is saying here is that, specifically, he's putting emphasis on the word they in this quote. Let me read this to you again with the emphasis where I believe the author wants it to be. As I swore in my wrath, they shall not enter my rest. They shall not enter my rest. Now, when, when you read the verse with that emphasis, it becomes clear that the author has connected in his mind the fact that the prohibition was specifically leveled against this generation, saying that generation won't enter into my rest. Those people who denied my promise, who, who failed to believe in me, they will not have the privilege of entering into my rest. That also gives us another clear insinuation. If they won't enter... Someone will. Someone's going to enter. It just won't be them, is the point that he's making here. When you read it with that emphasis, it becomes clear. His point is that this, this was not a universal closure of the rest of God. It's not as if God closed the book at that point and said, I'm done. No one can enter into my eternal rest. That's not what he said. He said, they specifically will not. You remember in the garden, when Adam and Eve sinned and they're cast out of the garden... In that situation, not only were they cast out and barred from re-entry, but all of their children were cast out. We're cast out. We, we're unable to enter back into that garden. That was a universal closure at that time of entrance back into the Garden of Eden. That's not what's happening here. The, the, the invitation of entering into the rest of God still stands. And he continues to support that with the next statement that also initially is confusing, but it will become clear as we study it. Here's what it says next. Although his works were finished from the foundation of the world. So let's put it together. He has said, God has said, as I swore in my wrath, they shall not enter the rest. He said that even though his works were finished from the foundation of the world. Now with this statement, the author is zooming out. He's taking us much further back, past the wilderness generation, back to creation. And he's saying, I'm making the argument that the rest of God is still available today because that rest did not begin and end with the promise to those Israelites to enter into the promised land. In fact, the rest of God began all the way back on the seventh day of the creation week and has continued since that time. He's going to make that argument very clear here in just a moment. I'm not pulling that out of thin air. Now, the reason that, that we can have confidence then of entering into God's rest and that this is not a universal closure of God's rest is because it dates all the way back to the seventh day of the creation week. This instance with the wilderness generation is really sort of a foreshadowing or a, a type of the spiritual rest that's still available to us all. And so he's going to prove that to us now as he continues on in verse 4 and 5. <clears throat> now remember, here are the two questions he's answering. How do we know God's rest is still available? And how do we know that believers specifically will enter into that rest? In verse 4, he continues. 
For he has said somewhere concerning the seventh day. And here's another quote. And God rested on the seventh day from all his works. Now, when he introduces this quote with the words, he has said somewhere, he's not being flippant with the scriptures. He's also not indicating that he doesn't know where in the Bible this is. This is something he's already done before back in chapter 2, verse 6. It appears to be a technique that the author uses here when he thinks he understands that the original audience would have known exactly where he was talking about. He doesn't quote it, the reference, because he knows that everyone knows exactly what verse he's referring to. This is Genesis chapter 2, verse 2. We're going to read the verses surrounding it. The text says, Thus the heavens and the earth were completed and all their hosts. By the seventh day God completed his work which he had done, and he rested on the seventh day from all his work which he had done. Then God blessed the seventh day and sanctified it, because in it he rested from all his work which God had created and made. Now clearly the author quotes this passage as a supporting argument for the statement that he just made that God's work was finished from the foundation of the world. This is what he's talking about. When he says from the foundation of the world, he means literally after God created on the seventh day, he tells us he entered into this this rest. But what's the point? What's the point of this argument? Well again, how do we know that God's rest is still available today? The answer is because God entered that rest on the seventh day and has never stopped. He's he's maintained that state of rest since that time. And he'll stay in that state of rest, the idea is, for forever. And that's the eternal rest he's inviting us into. He's inviting us to join it. By the way, this highlights an important point that we can't miss. Here in the text, when it talks about God's rest or his rest, or when God says, my rest... He's not simply talking about some rest that he's created, that he owns, that he's inviting you to come participate in. It's more than that. What he's saying here is that this is the place where God is. It's God's rest. That is, it's the the rest that God is experiencing himself. And so when he says, you're going to enter into my rest, what he's saying is, come and be with me. Come and be where I am. Come and, and, and enjoy me and the rest that I exist in. So it's an invitation to come and be with God himself and to experience the rest that he himself is experiencing. But he follows up this quote from Genesis 2-2 with going back again to Psalm 95, and he's going to tie the two texts together. He quotes again, look back at the text, verse 5, and again in this passage, that is Psalm 95, They shall not enter my rest. He's making a correlation. There's something that's sticking out in his mind here, and I believe it's the answer to that second question. How do we know that believers will enter into that rest? Well, if you put it together, he's saying this. God's rest is still active and available because it began on the seventh day of the creation week, and we know that the prohibition was given specifically to this generation, and he's already told us that the reason they didn't enter was because of of their lack of faith. Therefore, the insinuation is those who will enter are those who have genuine faith in God and specifically in the gospel. The culprit was unbelief. Hebrews 3.19, so we see that they were not able to enter because of unbelief. Therefore, it remains to reason, stands to reason, 
that if they were denied entrance because of their lack of faith, those who have genuine faith enter into that rest. Now, that's the argument from the text. Hopefully, you can see that now that we've gone through it. But it does beg the question, what exactly is this rest of God? What is it? We began this passage by acknowledging the fact that the world would say, look, there's nothing to fear missing out on when it comes to eternity with God. You don't have to worry about it. It's going to be boring. You don't want to go there. Just enjoy your life. Have fun. And yet, I'm here telling you this morning, and so is the author of Hebrews, that that is a lie straight from the pit of hell. You and I can't imagine the glories that will be involved when we experience physically the rest of God. I can't even begin to describe it to you. I'm going to try, but I know it's going to fail because we can't in our finite minds comprehend it. And yet we must try because the more we stretch our minds to comprehend it, the more we understand just how glorious it is and how wonderful salvation is that Christ has purchased for us by his own blood. And so I want us to spend our final moments here in this text just dissecting this idea of the rest of God And it's my prayer that you then will be filled with great anticipation and joy as you think about entering into this wonderful rest. Now, to fully understand this, it's going to require us to consider what does it mean in Genesis chapter 2 when God says, on the seventh day, he rested. Because the author here has tied it back to that moment. And so he's brought our minds back into that passage Now, as we contemplate God's rest on the seventh day that continues on now, the first thing we have to do is rid ourselves of the common understanding of the word rest in English and in our lives. Think of it this way. When the doctor tells you to go home and take an aspirin and rest, what do you picture? Go get in bed, find a comfy place, lay there, and don't do anything. Now, for some of you, that's like awesome. For others of you, you're thinking, I can't do that. I've got too many things to do. You can't rest for five minutes, let alone two days. And so particularly for those of us who who struggle with the idea of of resting for a couple of days, when we think about resting for eternity, uh, you want me to go find a comfy spot and just sit there? Is that what God's inviting us into? Is that what God means when he says on the seventh day and he rested? He found a comfy place and just sat down? You see, we have come to think of rest as inactivity. And certainly that's how we use it in English, and that's fine. I'm not making a judgment on that. I'm just saying don't bring that picture into the rest of God. He's not inviting you into eternal inactivity. In fact, though God rested and has rested since the seventh day, he's still very much actively at work in the world. It's not this deistic idea, that this sort of deism that God has created the world and set it spinning and then took his hands off and he's just watching. That's not what the Bible says. God created and, yes, entered into a state of rest, and yet he's very active in working in the world today. So what in the world is this rest then if it's not inactivity? Well, think of it this way. I love this quote by Richard Phillips. He says, when we say that God rested, We do not mean that he went on vacation or removed his care from our world. The picture is rather that after having made and ordered and subdued the creation according to his desired plan, his control was so absolute, his sovereignty so unquestioned, 
that God enthroned himself without effective opposition. His reign is one of rest, that is, of absolute supremacy and unassailable sovereignty, so much so that he exerts all his rule from the position of rest. It is the kind of rest possible to a God who could say, I am God and there is no other. I am God and there is none like me, declaring the end from the beginning and from ancient times things not yet done, saying, my counsel shall stand. So when we think of God's Sabbath rest, we should immediately think of his utter, uncontested, sovereign rule. So God continues to be active in the world and in the universe, but he does it from a place of rest because he does it as the sovereign of the universe whom no one can challenge. He fears no rival. God God sets out to accomplish a plan, and there's not an ounce of wonder in the mind of God as to whether or not that plan will take place. When God says, it happens. That's what it is to rule from a place of rest. When there is no one who can challenge your rule, when there is nothing who can thwart your plan, that is ruling from a place of rest. If you think about it, the things that cause us trepidation and fear in our daily lives, it's because we set out to do plans, and the truth is we don't know if they're going to work. We put in investments and hope that they'll grow, but sometimes they fail. Farmers put crops in the ground, and they wonder if it's going to rain. They wonder if they're going to grow. Are they going to make a profit, or are they going to go bankrupt? We don't know. We we pray for health. We hope for health. We take vitamins and medicine for health. But the truth is, sometimes our health fails. For all of us, ultimately, our health will fail at some point. And yet, God never experiences any of those things. He rules completely. His plans come to pass. And and you know what? When, When people think that Satan and God are sort of battling it out, they have the wrong impression. God is not afraid of the devil. The devil has no power that God has not allowed him to have. And so he doesn't sit on his throne looking for someone to stab him in the back. He's not afraid of that. He rules from a place of rest. In fact, when God rules and and mankind sinfully rebels against God and and tries to gather against him some rebellion, this is what God does. Psalm 2 verse 1. Why are the nations in an uproar and the people devising a vain thing? The kings of the earth take their stand, and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed, saying, let us tear their fetters apart and cast away their cords from us. You know what they're saying? They're saying, let's get rid of their rule. We're tired of serving them. Let's let's take the fetters of of their rule, and let's let's take them off, and let's rebel. What does God do? Verse 4, he who sits in the heavens laughs. The Lord scoffs at them. Why? Because his rule is complete, it's uncontested, it's unrivaled. When he created the world and he said, it is good, it was exactly as he intended for it to be, it was done. And he rested in the sense that he would maintain control and rulership over that, but from a place of complete, unthwarted sovereignty. Now with that understanding of God's rest in mind, Let's consider the fact that God in salvation invites you to come to him and to be with him where he is and to experience his rest. And here in Hebrews, we're told even that that rest in a spiritual sense is given to us now. 
there is some sense in which we are called to enter into God's rest even today, while also looking forward to a future full and complete entrance into that rest that will be physical for the rest of our existence, for eternity. So let's take a few moments now and consider both aspects of our invitation to enter enter into the rest of God. Let's think about the, the present spiritual rest, and then we'll look ahead to future physical rest. But what does it mean when, we, when the author of Hebrews says that even now we enter into this present spiritual rest? Well, believers have the privilege of, of a myriad of spiritual realities in salvation. There's a, a short list. We could add to this list. But once we come to know Christ, these are the things that are ours. One, assurance of salvation. Assurance of our adoption into his family. Assurance of our citizenship in his coming kingdom. Assurance that God will work all circumstances for our spiritual good and his glory. God's continual work of sanctification. God's peace, strength, and comfort in trials and temptation. God's promise to preserve us in our faith. And God's promise of future glorification. Now that's a short list. We could expand that list. It's a representative list, but you get the idea. Look at the wonders of what God has promised to us in Christ that are already ours. These spiritual assurances that belong to you now in the present tense if you're in Christ. These should have a a noticeable impact on our daily lives now. This should affect the way we live. It should affect the way we think. Because while God has not promised in this life to see to it that our circumstances in this fallen world are perfectly in accordance with his rest as they will be one day, he has promised to give us spiritual rest in the midst of whatever comes. That's why Paul would command Christians in Colossians 3 to do this. Therefore, if you've been raised up with Christ, keep seeking the things above where Christ is. Seated at the right hand of God, set your mind on the things above, not on the things that are on earth, for you have died and your life is hidden with Christ in God. The Christian finds comfort and strength in the midst of the difficulties of life in a fallen world by setting his or her mind on the spiritual realities that are already ours in Christ. Or in other words, we contemplate the fact that we are already spiritual participants in God's sovereign rest. We worship the God. We belong to the God who is the uncontested ruler of the universe. And that sets us at rest internally, even when our external circumstances are a hurricane. Because we know we are in his hand. And so we come to God in the midst of trial and temptation, the battle with sin. We set our gaze on Christ and we find internal rest, even when all around us seems to be falling apart. It's because the believers come to understand that this life is not our final home. Our hope is not here, but in the eternal kingdom of God that will be fully and completely characterized by his rest and perfectly in alignment with his character and sovereign rule. And so we continue to follow God faithfully in this temporal life because our souls are already experiencing the rest and security that comes from forgiveness of sins, a right relationship with God, and a sure hope of heavenly citizenship. In addition to that, we understand that that the entrance of sin into the world has not thwarted God's plan, and even now, nothing comes to pass 
that's apart from his perfect will. And his designs are always good and can never be thwarted. And thus the believer has an internal spiritual sense of God's rest even now. And yet if you think that's exciting, just think of what it will be when our faith becomes sight. And that internal rest becomes our physical reality all around us. So consider with me for a moment aspect number two of this rest, future physical rest. When I say physical, I mean sight. We'll live in it. We'll walk in it. You know, as we attempt to contemplate what God's future physical rest will be like, the closest parallel that we have in Scripture that's ever happened on this planet is what Adam and Eve experienced in the garden before the fall. It's not an exact correlation, but there's overlap there. You think about it, Adam and Eve were immediately brought into a state of God's rest. God rested on the seventh day, and at that time, the world exhibited that idea of rest. And what was the world like at that time? It was a world in which they were given real work to accomplish, but that work was carried out in the context of sinless perfection, a perfect relationship with God, in a world that was in perfect conformity to the righteous character of God. It only ever did what God designed it to do. Adam and Eve forfeited that privilege, of course, when they sinned, and thus casting all of us into this this life where we are under the curse. But the Scriptures clearly teach that there is coming a day when God will make all things new. He will dwell again with his people in the physical sense and and his sovereign rest will again characterize all of creation. The difference between the new creation and and the garden are several things, but the primary thing is it will be even better because now we'll have an understanding of redemption in Christ. But but this description in in the Bible of what it will be like is, is beyond our imagination. Now, this is a theological sermon for another day, but let me just give you the highlights. The Bible speaks of this entering into God's rest in in, in two ways. One, there's the millennial kingdom, which is a a literal 1,000-year reign of Christ on this planet, followed by the eternal state. The eternal state is the the ultimate sense of rest of God, but it will will begin to be experienced even in the millennial kingdom. I want to read two passages of Scripture for you that give a description of what this will be like. The first is from Isaiah 65. Isaiah 65 is an an Old Testament passage, of course, that, that, that goes back and forth between descriptions of the eternal state and the millennial kingdom. But all the descriptions are mind-boggling. Just picture living in a place like this. Isaiah 65, beginning in verse 17. For behold, I create new heavens and a new earth, and the former things will not be remembered or come to mind. But be glad and rejoice forever in what I create. For behold, I create Jerusalem for rejoicing and her people for gladness. I will also rejoice in Jerusalem and be glad in my people, and there will no longer be heard in her the voice of weeping and the sound of crying. No longer will there be in it an infant who lives but a few days, or an old man who does not live out his days, for the youth will die at the age of 100, and the one who does not reach the age of 100 will be thought accursed. They will build houses and inhabit them. They will also plant vineyards and eat their fruit. They will not build and another inhabit, 
that will not plant and another eat. For as the lifetime of a tree, so will be the days of my people. And my chosen ones will wear out the work of their hands. They will not labor in vain or bear children for calamity. For they are the offspring of those blessed by the Lord and their descendants with them. It will also come to pass that before they call, I will answer. And while they are speaking, I will hear. The wolf and the lamb will graze together. And the lion will eat straw like the ox. And the dust will be the serpent's food. They will do no evil or harm in all my holy mountain, says the Lord. Now, much of that passage, I believe, will take place in the millennial kingdom specifically. But listen to the revelation given to John of what the eternal kingdom will be like in Revelation 21, verses 1 to 8. This is just a snippet of this. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth passed away, and there's no longer any sea. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, made ready as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the tabernacle of God is among men, and he will dwell among them, and they shall be his people, and God himself will be among them. And he will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and there will no longer be any death. There will no longer be any mourning or crying or pain. The first things have passed away. And he who sits on the throne said, Behold, I make all things new. And he said, Right, for these words are faithful and true. Then he said to me, It is done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. I will give to the one who thirsts from the spring of the water of life without cost. He who overcomes will inherit these things, and I will be his God, and he will be my son. But for the cowardly and unbelieving, and abominable, and murderers, and immoral persons, and sorcerers, and idolaters, and all liars, their part will be in the lake that burns with fire and brimstone, which is the second death. Listen to this beautiful description of what that kingdom will be like. Just imagine it for a moment. Imagine a life in which there's no more sin. A life in which you will no longer commit sin or even think of committing sin, and no one else around you will ever commit sin or think of committing sin. Imagine a world that's completely characterized by truth, by goodness, and the righteous character of God. Imagine a world filled with the physical presence of God, so much so that the very light of the world exudes from God himself. Imagine perfect fellowship with every other person there. Imagine a world in which the concept of death is non-existent and grief is no longer an emotion that people experience. Imagine a world in which your body is not limited by sickness, disease, fatigue, or age. Imagine a world where work is not mixed with vanity. And friend, once you've imagined all those things, Understand that your knowledge of what the rest of God will be like is like a match compared to the sun. It will be far greater than we could ever put into words. And this is what God has invited us into. Come and be with me. And you know it's true if you're a believer because he's already guaranteed it. You know it in your heart and your soul. The Holy Spirit has given you a down payment of it. And you have, you have courage and hope that I will be there one day there with, with him because he's here now with me. And he has changed me and I am new. And one day I will walk with him and I will be as he intends for me to be. 
Friend, do you want to be there? Don't miss the sober warning at the end of that passage in Revelation. Those who remain hard-hearted in their sin will have a very different reality. One absent from those things. It will not be a party with the devil, but all those who are unbelieving. And the devil himself will experience the eternal fire of God's wrath. But there is hope today for all who put their faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. If you will turn from your sin and put your faith in Christ, you will be there with him. Don't waste this opportunity that's offered to us to enter into that rest. And so as we close, let me just draw your attention to three things very quickly. Number one, if you're a believer, enjoy God's present spiritual rest. Enjoy it. God has not promised to change your circumstance, but he has promised to hold you fast and to give you his peace and comfort in the midst of every test. Are you walking in the joy of the Lord today? Is your internal disposition characterized by the rest of God? If you're in Christ, God's spiritual rest is yours. To live in it, what we have to do is continually set our eyes on the Lord Jesus Christ. Turn your mind to those spiritual realities that are already yours in Christ and keep it there. And then the things of this earth will grow strangely dim. Run to him in prayer and for refuge. The psalmist understood this. That's why he said in the psalm we read this morning, God is our refuge and strength, a very present help in times of trouble. Secondly, if you're in Christ, anticipate God's future physical rest. Do you look forward to it? Do you think about it? Do you long to be where he is? Don't fall into the trap of placing your hope in the things of this world. Listen, nations rise and fall, riches and health come and go. Our hope is not in elections, stocks, promotions, or a clean bill of health. Our hope is in an eternal kingdom ruled by the sovereign king of the universe. In Jesus Christ, are you excited about that kingdom? How much time do you spend daydreaming about that kingdom rather than the things you wish were different about this earthly kingdom? kingdom. Meditate on the glories of the kingdom that is to come, the one that is characterized by the perfect rest of God. And as you do so, may it help us let go of the grip that we have on the shiny but temporal things of this life. And thirdly, proclaim Christ as the entrance to God's rest. As long as God chooses to leave us here in this temporal fallen world, it's our privilege and responsibility to, to tell others that God's rest is available for all who repent and believe the gospel, repent and believe in Jesus Christ. And when the lost world takes note of the fact that you have internal rest when your external circumstances are full of chaos, and they come to you and they ask, what is your secret? You stand there and tell them, oh friend, I don't have a secret. I have a Savior. Let me tell him about it. Let me tell you about him. Open your mouth. Share the good news of Jesus Christ as long as he leaves you here on this earth. Don't waste your pain. Don't waste your trials. Don't waste your joys. May we use them all 
for the furtherance of his kingdom until we are all there together one day, standing perfected, worshiping the Lord Jesus Christ, surrounded by the physical rest of God.